This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. We've done uh, some subdivisions where um, our gross profit was seven figures. I wish I could do more of those deals. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. Today, we have a great guest, David Krulak. He is just a really smart guy and has very detailed strategy for everything he does. He has done over 500 real estate transactions and has been featured on Bigger Pockets and Joe Fairless's Best Ever podcast. Uh, I learned a lot from this show. One of my main takeaways, uh, other than the two that I'll mention in a sec, was just how deliberate and detail-oriented David is and how uh, some people think that you need flash or salesmanship, but David is just steady and takes a mechanical approach to everything he does. So really interesting stuff. Uh, the two things that did stand out from this episode that I think you guys can benefit from uh, was his step-by-step walkthrough of how to work with contractors. He has three or four strategies that I am going to implement directly. And if any of you guys are working with contractors, you know, it's very difficult and can often be the most challenging part of any deal you're doing, but he walks through a couple strategies of how he saves money, how he keeps them accountable, how he manages the, the supply and the materials and what he does on a day-to-day basis with them. So that was the first one, really good. The second tip was how you can start targeting foreclosed properties or courthouse sale properties for cash flow today. He built up, I want to say over well, he's done over 500 transactions and he goes through how he got started with scale. But I want to say uh, he, he's done over 100 of these where at least he's bought either foreclosed or courthouse properties. And for a lot of people, it's kind of like an unknown. How can you do that? Or do I need experience to get started? But he walks through step by step how anyone can get started with that and how he did it to start building his business. Today's tangible tip is if you are a Google Chrome user, This is one that is like my favorite random tip that saves me so much time throughout the day. Uh, If you start typing anything that you've searched, let's say in the last month to two months into your search bar. So for me, I use Google Suite. So I have a lot of sheets, docs, and forms that I use on like an everyday basis. if you search just the first couple of letters of that word or you start to type it, you can pretty much find any document or tool without having to go into your file explorer or go into the tree of files to find them. And it's so easy because it just pops up. For me, it's even better in the sense of when I do stuff for my software job, 
there's times where it's like impossible to find a quote that you looked at months ago. And sometimes what I'll just do is I'll literally copy and paste the quote number into the Google Chrome search bar, just the regular bar at the top. And it'll populate what that page was. And you don't have to actually find that quote or dig into, let's say an Excel spreadsheet. If you want to find the page, it will find that page for you just based on the history or the cookies, cache, whatever it is within the actual search feature. So that's something that I use all the time. If you just start to search by like the beginning of a word or something you've looked up like in the last couple of weeks or months, there's a good chance that it'll populate there and you don't need to actually find it again. You can just search it on a blank word and the, the search feature in the bar is so smart. So really random one, but uh, that's one, I hope it makes sense. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite like day-to-day -day hacks and uh, just saves me so much time. So hope, hope it helps. Without any further ado, let's get into today's episode with David Krulak. All right, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Jonathan. Yeah, I was excited to have you on. Um, last couple months, really just digging into a lot of uh, experienced people that have done a lot of deals, and you have done tons of deals. Just digging into your experience a little bit, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into it today. But um, you've scaled so quickly in the amount of transactions you've done, and different types of real estate transactions you've done. I don't know if there's another investor that I've come across that has done as many deals or different types of deals as you have. So it was really excited to have you on. I know you've done plenty of these before, Bigger Pockets, Joe Fairless, a bunch of the others. So um, yeah, just, just should be a fun episode today and excited to get into your story. Uh, for those that don't know, you mind just giving a quick background on how you got into real estate and uh, what your current interest is today. Bring us up from uh, start to, to now from a high level. Sure. Uh, a friend of mine uh, started investing in real estate and uh, I saw that he was having uh, good success, and uh, I thought that that might be something that I'd be interested in getting into. Um, so I started looking for real estate, and I looked at a whole bunch of stuff, um, things that uh, I could afford I didn't like, things that I liked I couldn't afford. Uh, so it was a struggle. Um, I had a low-paying, entry-level job, and uh, I was having a hard time finding anything. Uh, somebody that I worked with said, well, they're having an auction for a house on my street. Uh, maybe you should take a look at it. So I went and I took a look at this house, and it was, I think, 17 years old. It was a ranch house. It was you know, in decent condition. It was better than anything that I had been looking at, and uh, so I went to the auction. I'd never been to an auction before for anything, let alone real estate. I'd never bought any real estate before. And um, the terms of the sale were uh, you needed 10% uh, down the day of the auction, uh, remainder of 90% settle in 30 days. So I went to the auction um, with... Uh, enough deposit to bid up to 25,000. Well, it got up to 25,000 and I'm at my bid limit and somebody else bid 25,5. You know, so at an auction, you don't have a whole lot of time to think or contemplate. Um, I didn't have anybody there to advise me. Uh, my parents lived hundreds of miles away. They weren't there with me. I just made the decision right then to, to bid 26000 
and the other bidder bid 26.5, and uh, I bid 27,000, and the other bidder stopped bidding. <laughs> so I got the house. That's the good news. The bad news is I didn't have enough money for the 10% deposit. Uh, another friend of mine had come along with me just out of curiosity. And I was really tapped out. I mean, literally tapped out. I didn't have any more money in the bank. I didn't have any money in my pocket. I didn't have any money. And I said to him, you know, could I borrow a couple hundred dollars for you to, from you to make up the deposit? And he says, okay. So um, before they would let me sign the papers, uh, we went to his bank and he withdrew $200 and, and lent it to me. And I went back to the auction and gave him the deposit and signed all the papers and uh, we're going to settle in 30 days. I was under lease at an apartment. I went to the manager. I said, I just bought a house. I'd like to break my lease. I said, how about if we break it in 45 days? He said, fine. Um, the auction was being held by the state uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, they had acquired this property to put in an interchange on a four-lane highway. And the initial design was that the interchange was going to empty into a subdivision, and the people that lived in the subdivision protested, and they got the state to redesign the interchange so that it skirted the perimeter of the development rather than going into the development. But they had already purchased three houses, and uh, so they tore one of the houses down. They didn't actually tore it down. They sold it to somebody, but it had to be moved. And then they kept these other two houses, and they rented them for seven years. And then they needed an act of the legislature and the signature of the governor in order to sell these properties as excess to the state's needs. And I was the high bidder, and I got the property. Well, the sale was being handled by the state attorney general's office, and uh, they were the ones that auctioned it off, and they were the ones that were handling the sale. Well, we come up on the 30 days that we're supposed to settle, and they weren't ready to settle. So I went over to the state capitol, to the attorney general's office, and I talked to the deputy attorney general handling the sale, and I said, well, they've already re-rented my apartment where I'm living, and uh, I'm going to be homeless. Uh, can I move into the house before settlement? And he said, well, no, we can't do that. He says, we, we don't carry insurance. And the, the state and some of their properties, they self-insure, so they don't have insurance policies. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that's not really a problem. You know, I thought we were going to settle in 30 days, so I got an insurance policy. And uh, the attorney general said, well, if you show proof of insurance, we'll give you the keys. I says, okay, fine. So I got the insurance binder, went back over there, gave them the insurance binder, they gave me the keys, and I moved in. Well, I, I didn't mention anything about rent. They didn't mention rent. So I thought we were going to settle in a few days or something. Um, it turned out that I lived there for six months before we settled. I didn't pay any mortgage. I didn't pay any rent. Uh, they took care of the sewer and the trash because it had to go to the deeded owner. And it was during the summertime. They had contracted for lawn service, so every week somebody came and cut the grass. 
which was okay with me because I didn't even have a lawnmower. And uh, I started house hacking and rented out a room to somebody else who was paying me rent to live there. So it was this fantastic deal. I was collecting rent, living there for free, not paying any rent, not paying any mortgage, only paying some of the utilities, and lived there for six months rent-free. I said, this real estate, this this is great stuff. I'm going to keep on buying this stuff. This is good. I want to do this over and over again. Well, I've never been able to repeat that deal. <laughs> so it, it was a one of. But that's how I got started in real estate. And you were how old at that first transaction, 1975? I was uh, uh, 26 when I bought that house. Oh, okay. I'm 26 too, so that's funny. And and was the the money you had? Well, what you that, that's hilarious that you that you didn't actually have what you needed after it got bid up a little bit. But the money that you had initially was that just money you'd saved up from working or no you'd had I, or I got I got the the 2500 from my parents. It was a it was a loan from my parents. I, I didn't have any money in it, and. Uh, uh, no, I got a 90% bank mortgage uh, as mm-hmm. owner-occupant, and uh, 10% down payment came from my parents. Got it. So uh-huh. I was okay. in it. I was in it for nothing down, essentially. <laughs> and you were doing the the house hack, I think, before anyone did. You at the time was anyone talking about that strategy? Because now with bigger pockets, it's become so pronounced and, and for a lot of beginners, it's what they have known to become as an entryway into real estate. And it seems like it, it hooked you as well when you realized you could find a way to live for free or make money to live. But was anyone else doing that at the time or talking about it or like as a strategy or was it just something that kind of happened in some cases? The term wasn't there. The term is a new term, but you no, know, the process is an old process. You no, know, it just has a new name to it. Um, it was a three-bedroom house. You know, I was single. Um, you know, it became apparent to me that it would be a good idea if I could, you know, rent out rooms. And during the time that I lived there, I rented one room. Sometimes I rented two rooms. And uh, at one point, I rented three of the bedrooms, and I took up living in the family room. Um, I never advertised for tenants. I never put a sign outside. I never had an ad in the newspaper or anything else. Um, almost all the the people that I got either worked at the same place where I worked or were referrals from somebody that I worked with. So uh, there was a steady supply of people who were looking for rooms for one reason or another. Hmm. That's really funny. That's exactly how I started the same way. Three bedroom, one and a half bath house hacked and just filled it with people I worked with and then just did it year after year. But um, so, so that's, it's funny because I think it's such a good strategy for people starting out and more so ever today with interest rates, what they are, people not sure they need a place to live anyway. So why not try to house hack? Is, is there anything that in that first deal that you learned or stood out to you that, that you took with you onto your, your second, your third, your 50th deal that you learned kind of on that first one that maybe changed your trajectory or your strategy a little bit? 
I didn't know it at the time, but that house uh, became like a prototype for houses that I wanted to buy. Um, it was a ranch house. It was brick. It had gas heat. It had three bedrooms. It had a bath and a half. Um, I'd buy that same kind of house today. You know, that that's mm -hmm. a, a bread and butter house. Um, I've found throughout all the properties I've bought, and I've bought and sold over 980 properties for my own inventory. Um, mm -hmm. A three-bedroom ranch house is a prototype. I mean, I'd still buy that kind of house today, and I've bought a whole bunch since then that were the same kind of house. Um, it's, a, it's a good house. It's an easy house to rent. It appeals to uh, a broad scope of demographics. Um, you know, it can be a family with a couple kids. It can be a single person. It can be a couple. It can be somebody retired. Uh, it can be somebody just starting out. You no, know, there's a whole wide range of demographics, you know, to buy a house like that. Yep, 100. percent And that's and, you, and you it's in the it's okay. in the middle middle price range. It's not the lowest priced house, and it's not you know a luxury type house. It's in the middle, so it also has you know a much broader population of people who are looking for that house and can afford that kind of house. So those kind of houses are easy to buy and easy to rent and easy to sell. Right. That you you kind of answered my which would have been next question of a lot of people ask what type of property or how do I find the property? Well, you answered it with how you found it, but the type of property that, that you talked about, I think is to your point, ideal for the house hack. And for most people that do it, they talk about something that is, I don't want to say middle of the road, but something that has a lot of options and a lot of people are looking for instead of something that may be really high end or really low end, but middle grade housing is sort of always in demand. It doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. People need to live and there's going to be kind of a sweet spot for that. So that makes total sense. And it sounds like then you, you well, you've done tons of transactions, but it sounds like you added a lot more of those types of properties as you started scaling, or at least that was a prototype type of property like you talked about. Yeah, that, that's a good property to start with. Um, some of the other things about that house were um, it really didn't need any work. It wasn't in immaculate condition, but I could move in right away. You know, it didn't need a ton of, of renovation or anything. Um, it had Anderson windows. Um, there had been a windstorm come through, and the state had just put on a brand-new roof. So even though it was only a 17-year-old house, it had a brand-new roof on it. No, it had a, a zero-year roof on it, a 17-year-old house. And I owned, I lived there for a few years, and then I moved out, and I just rented the whole house to a tenant. And mm -hmm. I kept that house for uh, 24 years. When I wow. sold that house, it still had the same gas furnace in it as when I bought it. So I never replaced the furnace in 24 years. I never replaced any of the windows. I never replaced the roof in 24 years because it was brand new when I moved in. It had hardwood floors. Uh, it had ceramic tile bathrooms. Um, you know, we had painted it multiple times. 
at one point I had put in wall-to-wall carpeting. Then when I went to sell it, I took the wall-to-wall carpeting on and exposed the hardwood floors. Uh, they just needed to be cleaned. They didn't even need to be refinished. You know, we never did any remodeling. We never knocked on any walls or any, added an addition or anything else to that house over that 24-year period. So it was a house that had low maintenance and, and low amount of repairs for the whole 24 years that I owned it. It's, you, since you bought it at auction, it, it's hard to say. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Do you think it was a, a little lucky that the property you got at the beginning turned out not to be a dog? Because I've heard stories like yours and small percentage heard the, the horror stories, people buying at auction, sight unseen, and buying something that has tons of problems. And, you know, with your story also, buying something at auction, I think people have also had an experience where they have their number, they go over their number, they get the deal, and immediately they feel a sense of panic because it's almost like that that uh, social proof. If, if someone else doesn't want the same deal at that price, you know, why does, why not and why am I getting it at that price? So I guess is there anything advice you'd give to someone as far as out there right now that's maybe buying something on an online auction or maybe even a courthouse auction or an in-person auction that you would recommend to maybe make sure that they don't buy a bad deal or buy something that is going to be a lot of trouble. In your case, it wasn't. And that's amazing. But any advice for someone that maybe is out there trying to replicate a strategy like you did to start, at least from the acquisition side? This wasn't an online auction and it wasn't sight unseen. Um, They opened the house up. They had an open house like before the sale. And then the day of the sale, they actually had the auction in the living room of this house. So I got to walk the house, look at everything as I wanted to and, and could look at and and knew to look at. Um, I liked you know, some of the components that were there, like like it was, it was brick on all four sides. Well, brick is low maintenance. It had hardwood floors, you know, and they were in good condition. You know, that's something I, I like. It has gas heat. That's my number one preference for heat. You know, it's it's cheaper to operate. Uh, it's cleaner. Um, uh, it's more desirable for tenants. You know, it's a cheaper operation for tenants than oil heat or electric baseboard heat. You know, so it had the right right components to it. And I've bought a lot of properties at auction. Um, I bought properties at sheriff sales. I bought properties at tax sales. Um, I bought properties that were at public sales, people selling farms and things like that. I bought a lot of HUD properties, um, which are online auctions. But you know, in the case of the HUD properties and the VA properties that I bought, you know, you're able to see the property in advance, you know, go through the property, you know, take a contractor with you or a home inspector or somebody knowledgeable in in building construction and maintenance. So it really isn't sight unseen. Now I have bought other properties Mm -hmm. at tax sale and sheriff sale where you don't get to see the inside. Um, I'd like to think now this isn't a hundred percent rule, but I like to think that the exterior condition 
is going to be similar to the inside condition. Now, if the house looks good on the inside, outside, I presume that it's going to look good on the inside. That's not always the case, though. Um, mm-hmm. But if the, the house looks bad on the outside, you know, if there's deferred maintenance, if there's peeling paint, you know, if you can see defects in the roof or there's a blue tarp on the roof, it's probably going to look the same way on the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's probably going to have deferred maintenance. It's probably going to have neglect. And a lot of houses that are sold on foreclosure, people aren't going to maintain them or improve them if they know that they're going to be ultimately losing the property. Um, we've had several cases where um, we've bought property that turned out to be um, contrary to the outside and the inside looking similar. I bought one property, um, it was a bank foreclosure, and it was a ranch house, and so I tried looking into the windows. Most of the windows, the blinds were closed or they had drapery, there was only like one window that I could look in the window and see inside the room, and it looked okay. It looked decent. Well, we got the house, and we got into the house then, and we found out that the bank uh, had turned off the electric, and there was a sump pump in the basement, and there was about two and a half feet of water in the basement, and it was a finished basement, and that water was in the basement, probably for at least two years. The house had extensive mold um, on the first floor, you know, above the basement. It was a ranch house also. Most of the walls were black with black mold all over them, all over the walls, all over the ceilings. Um, it was a disaster. Hmm. Um, we ended up on that house. We gutted the basement to the block walls the upstairs, we gutted all the drywall, all the insulation, the kitchen, the bath, the floor coverings. We had, we hired a contractor to do this, a remediation company. And then after they gutted all that, they then went in and treated the whole house with the mold aside to kill all the mold. And then we had the we hired another contractor to rebuild it. They had to put in all new insulation, all new drywall, all new walls and ceilings, uh, all new floor coverings, uh, new kitchen, new bathroom, new electrical service, new heat, new central air, new duct work. But we redid the whole house. And uh, we still own that house, and we rent it out. Just in that but, case, I've, but it was I've heard like, this it was, question. It was like rebuilding a, a new house no it's like a new house almost well that's that's exactly actually it's funny that's what i was what i was asking is in cases like that i've often heard people again people i think a lot of times unless it's super simple will not take action and um in, in a case like this i've heard some people say like i, I can't do fix and flips because i think sometimes the house is better to just knock down if it's in really bad shape or i don't know if it's worth rehabbing instead of knocking down, it sounds like in this case, it was probably as bad as it could have been. And you just still did a, a gut rehab and then refinished everything. Do you have, is, is knocking down ever a consideration for you? Or do you think if the structure and the, the exterior wall still exists, your, your strategy would be to still renovate and rehab the unit? It depends on the numbers. Um, 
I don't usually tear down a house. Um, and we've had some bad houses. We had another house that had extensive fire and smoke damage. Um, we had another house that had uh, mold damage. Um, we had another house that had water damage. So we've had a lot of you know, damaged houses. But we've been able to buy them at cheap prices. And even with the remodeling that we did, um, it was still profitable. Like the, the first example I, I gave you with the, the house that had the, the mold damage, we paid 30000 for it. The uh, demolition cost and remediation was 16000 And I shopped that really hard. I, I got like five or six estimates, and some of the estimates were double that. I think I had an estimate for 35000 to gut mm -hmm. it and uh, you know, treat it with moldicide. So you know, I ended up taking the lowest bid that I got. Our total rehab cost there was, including the remediation, was 50000 So we only had $80,000 into it. It's, it's, it's worth 150000 So there's mm -hmm. still you know, quite a large profit margin on it. You know, but the key to all that was buying it for thirty. You know when the ARV is 150. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense. I definitely want to go back to the strategy of the acquisition strategy and auctions and buying um, properties at auction scene or site unseen. But in in that case, I just want to ask about working with contractors. You've done tons of transactions and you've probably learned more than anyone working with contractors either what to do or what not to do in that case it sounds like you shopped out a couple different quotes and you had different contractors walk through um you hear advice out there sometimes saying you know not to go with the cheapest or if you get quotes line item inspecting line item by line item or have other contractors you know look at your final quote or, or stuff like that in this case it sounds like you shopped pretty hard and you found the lowest quote that you could, and it was a good deal. How did you ensure, or any advice to someone to ensure that if they go with a lower price quote, it's still going to be quality work, and it's still going to ensure that the job gets done instead of a optimistic contractor coming in and just trying to lowball a bid to win the deal? Um, I use, you know, licensed, legitimate contractors. Uh, I'm not getting people off of Craigslist you know, to do the work. I know other uh, investors, you know, they'll you know, get somebody off of Craigslist, somebody who's not licensed, uh, you know, may or may not have experience in, in that trade. You know, they, they'll say that they know how to do everything and they really don't. You know, I'm using you know, licensed contractors um, and a lot of the contractors um, are contractors that I've used repeatedly over the years. You know, I, I'm using the same plumbers. I'm using the same HVAC contractors. I'm using the same landscapers, carpenters, drywallers. You know, some, I'm using a lot of people who are uh, people that I've used uh, repeatedly on different jobs. And, you know, for me to continue to use them, they have to be you know, satisfactory, and, um, you know, there's three components to using a contractor. There's um, price, uh, quality, 
and speed. And they say that you can only pick two out of those three. You can't get a contractor that's going to be the lowest price, the highest quality, um, and the quickest turnaround time. No, that's not possible. You have to pick two out of the three that that, that you uh, want. Um, a lot of the contractors I use that I've used repeatedly, they're not necessarily the cheapest contractor, but they're reliable. Um, they guarantee their work. You know, if there's ever a problem with the work, they come back and they fix the problem. And um, we have a relationship, you know, some of them for many years, that you know, they know me, um, they'll, they'll do the work, and I don't even have to pay them until the work is done. They're not asking for an advance uh, or right. Right. even draws on payments. No, they, they do the work. They send me an invoice. I pay the invoice, and I pay it promptly, and I pay it in full. And right. um, we had a rental property a couple years ago where uh, the furnace went out you know, in the middle of winter on a Saturday night. I called my HVAC guy. He was there within an hour and fixed the furnace. Well, mm-hmm. David, I think sorry to interject for just one sec. I guess just in this case, you, you've um, like built up some amazing experience with these contractors. I just, I guess, I meant for someone that's starting out, how can they try to start building these relationships? Or if they don't have experience with demolition or rehab and they're evaluating five contractors that maybe came from referral. And they don't have the, they haven't had the time or experience like you have to build up rapport and relationship with them and vet out you know who are the best through experience and doing deals and they're just trying to figure out let's say how do I know of these five quotes um, one is sixteen thousand one thirty two thousand they're saying they're going to do the same thing how can I ensure that the work is going to get done if I'm just looking at quotes and I don't have experience with with contractors and I don't have the rapport with them yet. In the case of that remediation contractor, that was the first time that I had ever used them. So I didn't even have any relationship with them. Hmm. But they're an established company. You know, they have a a place of business. You know, um, they have trucks that have their names on it. You know, they're not driving around with the old beat-up pickup trucks that don't have any signs on them. No, they're an established business. Um, In the case of that, the work... Is pretty simple. You know, it's demolition work. You know, it's it's really unskilled work. You know, as far as that goes, they do the demolition um, with a mask and, and a whole Teflon suit on. You know, from the toes to the top of their head, they're covered in a Teflon suit. Um, the demolition work is pretty straightforward. The thing that I was looking for in the demolition was that they treated it with mold mold aside after they were all done and that we did an air quality test after they were all done to make sure that the the mold count was you know within standard limits after they were all done with the work and you know they didn't get paid until we had the passing mold test and um I very seldom will give a contractor money in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one safeguard that I use. 
sometimes uh, if it's a contractor that I'm not uh, familiar with and they're not familiar with me, they might ask uh, that I buy materials. Um, if I do that, lots of times what I would do is I would actually buy the materials myself, you know, like at a Home Depot or Lowe's, have mm -hmm. Home Depot and Lowe's deliver it to the job site. You know, I pay for the bill, uh, not rather than giving the, the contractor cash or credit card or anything else like that. So I've, I've bought the materials, and I haven't given cash to the contractor, but I've supplied him with materials to complete the job. Mm-hmm. So that that's another sense. safeguard that I try to use. Um, mm -hmm. I will use a contractor that's referred to me. Like if I'm dealing with a plumber you know, that I've dealt with for a long time, I'll say to him, uh, well, I'm looking for somebody to build a deck. Do you know anybody that does that? Usually good contractors know other good contractors you know, in, in different trades. You know, if you talk to an electrician, you know, he's been around and you know, he's a good electrician and you, know, you have an experience with him. He knows who good plumbers are because they do jobs together. You know, the electrician will be there and the plumber will be there and the carpenter will be there and the drywall will be there. They know each other in other trades. So mm -hmm. usually good contractors know other good contractors. And if it's somebody that you have a relationship with, they're going to want to make sure that they give you a good reference. They're not going to give you somebody you know, who's a crappy contractor who does sloppy work or you know, other things like that. So that's another thing is you can get referrals from other contractors that aren't in the same trade. Mm -hmm. That's a really good tip. One more, just uh, those, those are great because they're tangible and anyone listening can just put them into place. And if you know one good one, I, I completely agree with that, that they, the, the best typically know the best and they don't want to put their neck in the line to give a bad referral. Um, one thing that I've come across and I'm very curious your opinion on as far as completion of work is I don't have a trained eye as a contractor. There are times when, unless it's something outwardly like a bathroom or a kitchen where you can see the work completed and you know if it looks good or it doesn't. Um, if it's something that's, let's say, interior that you, you can't just from the untrained eye tell if the work is done well or not done well um, from, from a high level. Any tips for someone that, let's say, you know, a contractor finishes a job and they're the owner or, uh, let's say, you would be called in to just review it and inspect the job if they did a good job. Um, any tips for someone out there that's trying to figure out, okay, I'm looking at this. I'm trying to figure out if they did a good job, but I don't have experience with this type of repair. So, how would I really know if it's done well or not? Any, any advice for someone to, I guess, give contractors that, that final okay, like, okay, the job is done and now I can pay you um, instead of just kind of guessing? Well, let's say that you're doing a house to resell. Um, you know, maybe bring in the realtor that you're going to use and say, Hmm. No, what do you think of this kitchen insulation? Because they've seen lots of kitchens. They know what a good kitchen looks like, what a bad kitchen looks like, what um, what are good materials, what are bad materials to use. Um, another thing that you can do is, is rely on other contractors. Like if you have drywall work done mm -hmm. and then you have a professional painter come in, 
you can say, well, what do you think of this drywall work that's being done? Well, painters know what good drywall work is and what bad drywall work <laughs> is. So you're relying on one professional to critique another professional. Mm-hmm. So those yeah, are a couple sense. of techniques that I would I would recommend. One is you know, use a realtor or use a contractor that you know that's a friend or uh, use a professional to critique another professional. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really good. I, I like that. And that's something that I think people may sometimes be afraid to ask or they're just, they don't know to get a second opinion on something. So they're taking the contractor's word if let's say there's flooring done or, you know, sub flooring and they have no idea if it looks good or bad, but if you bring in another contractor or even if you pay another contractor just for their time, you know, they, maybe they want that, maybe they wouldn't, but they can basically bless the job and say, this is done well, this is not done well because they have the experience. So I think that's something that, again, if people are using that as a reason not to do work on their homes, thinking, how am I going to know, or I'm going to look stupid if I'm questioning the contractor all the time, getting a second opinion to say if the work is done or not may be a way that you can just ensure that one, it will be done. And two, you're going to not waste or throw away money and have to redo something. So that's, that's really good advice. Yeah, it's worked for Um, us. Yeah, no, it's great. So I know we dug into that a little bit, but just because I think it's useful for people and you've got so much rehab and demolition experience, you know, and working with contractors, I think that's a big concern for people that are getting into the game. So I know we dug into that a lot. Do you mind bringing uh, bringing us up to speed on kind of what happened next and how you started scaling from that first deal to over 900 transactions? And I know it wasn't all at once, but, you know, like year after year, what you started to do to scale and accumulate um, so many transactions um, one year um, I bought and sold 74 properties while I still had a full-time job not in real estate um, so I was doing wow. either a buy or sell at least once a week you know, to get, get to get 74 in, in one year um, what I started doing was um, I started going to tax sales and sheriff sales, and I've bought as many as 10 properties in one day at a sale like that. Um, wow. There's, you know, sometimes at a tax sale, there might be 400 properties being offered for sale one day. Um, it's a rapid fire auction. The auctioneer goes so fast that they can go buy a property and if they don't get a bid, they're on to the next property. You really have to pay attention. Um, uh, Sometimes people have asked me if they could come along to the sale. I said, you can come along to the sale, but you're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to ask me any questions. You're not allowed to say anything. You're not allowed to make any comment. You're not allowed to do anything because I have to concentrate on what property the auctioneer ha- is auctioning at that moment, and they go so fast. I've been to auctions where they go through 400 properties in two hours. That's how fast they can be auctioning wow. off these properties. You have to pay attention. You can't be distracted. Um, you can't make a mistake. 
you know, you can't bid on the wrong property. Um, and there's hundreds of people in the room. You know, sometimes the auctioneer doesn't see your bidding. So you got to you know, make sure that the auctioneer sees your bid. And uh, it's, it's intense. And, mm-hmm. you know, you were talking earlier about um, getting buyer's remorse. Mm-hmm. It's real easy at an auction to get caught up in the auction fever and things are moving so quickly that you pay more than you really wanted to. So when we go to the auctions, we have it in writing what we want to have as our maximum bid. I've seen people at auctions pay market price for properties. Well, that that defeats the whole purpose. I mean, you're you're there to try to get a bargain. You can't pay market price for the property. Yeah, so auctions really good point. Auctions can be uh really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, no, you're you're typically not getting to see the inside of the property. Uh, there's a lot of other hazards. You know, you're buying the property as is. Um, it doesn't have the same customary things that you would have in a normal sale, like off the molly list. You know, there's no home inspection. There's no home warranty. You no, know, you you can't have other inspections and then get out of the contract. I mean, you're buying it strictly as is. There is no warranty. There is no inspections, and in most cases, you can't see the inside. So it's, can you, it's hazardous. Can you talk to Can you talk to what type of auctions there are for someone that doesn't know and they're they're totally unfamiliar with this auction space of of tax auctions or court auctions? You hear a lot of the terminology, but can you just maybe give a high level of what this auction process is and what types there are? Um. A lot of different areas have different names for things. Um, I usually refer to sheriff sale as being a mortgage foreclosure. Somebody owns a property, they haven't paid their mortgage, the bank uh, brings it to foreclosure. Uh, In some states that's done judicially, which means they have to go through the courts. In other states it's non-judicial. Uh, so they don't have to go through the courts. It's a quicker process. Um, in some states, they call it a trustee sale or uh, something else. But a mortgage foreclosure, um, you're buying the property. A representative of the bank or the lender is there. Um, they can bid, you know, what is owed on the property. You know, if... if mm-hmm. You know, if the mortgage on it plus, you know, people haven't been paying their mortgage, it's not only what the principal balance is on the mortgage, there's also late fees and interest and all. No, so um, sometimes people haven't been paying for a long time. Um, typically, in the sheriff sales that I've been to, people haven't been paying for at least a year. And one of the other hazards in the northern parts of the country is that um, if it takes a year to go through foreclosure, uh, it's been through a winter. And if it hasn't been winterized, there's going to be freeze damage. You know, pipes are going to be burst. You know, heating pipes might be burst. Water pipes might be burst. There might be damage to a hot water heater or a boiler. You know, plus... You know, there could be roof leaks and other things. You know, 
that are detrimental to the property. Um, the bank can they they can set the the minimum bid. Um, they can go up to what is owed on the property, or they can decide that you know, they're going to have have to take a loss anyway, and they can say that they would accept less than what is owed on the mortgage. Um, and um, usually you can't find that out until the day of the sale. They don't announce that in advance. Um, mm-hmm. So you're actually bidding against the bank for the property, and you have to outbid the bank in order to get the property. Um, mm-hmm. We bought a whole subdivision at a sheriff's sale. Um, it was it was really interesting. It wasn't a mortgage that was against the, the property. It was a nursing home lien. Um, the person that owned the property went into a nursing home. They owed debt on the nursing home the bill, and it was uh, well over six figures. And the uh, nursing home foreclosed on this property, which was a, a large tract of, of a subdivision. And we bought the whole subdivision. Um, worked out really well for us, and the nursing home got their money, so they were all happy. They were all happy too. Um, so we bought properties like that at sheriff's sale. We've also bought a lot of properties at tax sale, and that would be where you don't pay your real estate taxes on the property, and. The rules are so varied, like every state has different rules on how they handle that. In some of the states, they sell tax liens, which is like a lien against the property. In other states, they sell a deed, a tax deed, which you actually get the deed to the property if you're the high bidder. They have all different kinds of rules. Some of the sales, they transfer all of the liens against the property. Like if there's a mortgage or a judgment or a lien against the property and you buy the property at tax sale, you get all those liens too. You get the whole bundle. In other tax sales, the judgments and liens are wiped out and you get the property free and clear. So you need to know what all the rules are uh, at the tax sale that you're going to because they are drastically different. Um, Makes total sense. Mm-hmm. It's it requires work. Um, we do title searches when we go to tax sale. Um, we search the property to know what the liens are before we go to the sale. You know, particularly when we're going to a sale where the liens transfer. Um, overall. In the United States, about a third of the properties have no liens against them. So, not everybody has a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, so what there is a are lien liens. for someone that doesn't know what that means? It could be a mortgage, you know, where you borrowed money to uh, buy the property or you refinance the property. It could be a judgment. We bought a property one time where the owner had gotten into a bar fight and uh, hurt somebody and they had medical bills and they sued him 
and he they had a judgment against him for their medical bills from this bar fight. Well, it go, it went against the property, so we had to settle that that lien. We had to pay off the guy who had the medical bills in order to buy the property free and clear. Uh, it could be federal mm-hmm. tax liens. We bought properties where um, the IRS was owed money, and they put a lien on the property. We bought two properties where the IRS lien was seven figures. Um, that was it. That was wow. interesting. Um, we ended up not paying any, any of those those IRS liens. You know, we were able to work around it and get it so that um, the liens were removed from the property. And when they remove them from the property, it still goes against the individual that owns the property that it, that owes the the IRS. But it no longer is a lien against the property. And we we were able to get those liens removed from the property. I have to ask, how did you get them removed? Um, In one case, uh, it was on a technicality. Um, The lien, it was was against a a man. Uh, He was married, but the IRS lien wasn't against his wife. It was only against him. But the property that they own, they own both the husband and the wife. Uh, and we were able to get that removed because he wasn't the sole owner of the, of the real estate. In another case, uh, we filed a suit, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, we ha- had to name the Attorney General of the United States as a defendant. We had to name the U.S. attorney for the state as a defendant, and we had to name uh, two offices of the IRS, one office for individual tax returns and one office for corporate tax returns. Uh, and we had to name them in a lawsuit and uh, you know, had to serve them with this lawsuit, and they had the opportunity to you know, file objections in court or... You know, do other things and after hmm. some discussion back and forth uh they decided not to answer uh the lawsuit that we presented and so we wanted default judgment against them got it for someone that's trying to get into this space they may have bought a few properties on the mls maybe they have not and they're they're trying to acquire properties kind of as you talked about, not buying retail price, buying something that is a deal or a bargain, which you would hope to get at an auction. What advice do you have for that person that's looking to start or where should they start? If let's say you were a 26 year old starting over today and this was gonna be your strategy, what, what would you do from a tactical standpoint, like day one starting out and making sure that you're buying something that's not gonna uh, end up really hurting you and it's actually gonna have a better chance of being successful? Um, we buy stuff off the Molly list. Um, mm-hmm. when I did an analysis for the book I wrote, about 50% of the properties we bought came out of the Molly list. Um, and some of the things that 
used to not be in the Maori list are now in the Maori list, like HUD foreclosures and DA foreclosures. Uh, they didn't used to be in the Maori list, but they're all in the Maori list now. Uh, and stuff that goes through sheriff's sale, a lot of the stuff that goes through sheriff's sale ends up being bank-owned, and the banks list that stuff through the Maori list. You know, so you don't really have to go to the banks and try to you know, untangle you know, the you know, bureaucratic mess that's at every bank to find out who to talk to is able to make a decision on selling a property. Those properties end up in the Maori list anyway. So all REOs, bank-owned properties, HUD-owned properties, VA-owned properties, and almost every other foreclosure ends up in the Maori list. Um, one of the things that we've done is we do um, letter solicitation for people. Um, if um, we're working in a certain area, <clears throat> we um, we did a bunch of work in in one area, and we sent out letters to every owner that was in that area who was out-of-state, uh, out-of-county owner, non-owner-occupied, um, people that owned the property for 20 years or more. We sent letters to every one of them saying, we might be interested in buying your property. Um, mm -hmm. We got a bunch of responses back. You know, the cost of doing that you know, is like the cost of a postage stamp, 55 cents is what your mm -hmm. cost is. Uh, we got a bunch of those back. We bought a bunch of those properties. Um, the first time that this happened, I was I was kind of surprised, but somebody called me and said, um, our mother passed away and we were going through her papers and we saw that you sent her a letter about buying her property five years ago. Are you still interested in buying it? And I said, maybe, sure. And, uh, you know, they told me about the property, and we ended up buying the property. Well, subsequent to that, that's happened several times where I sent out a letter, and years later I got a response, and I ended up buying the property. Mm. Um, so that was kind of surprising. I, I, I didn't think anybody would hold on to my letter for five years and then – so somebody would call me and we'd do a deal. Um, mm -hmm. When we were doing a lot of land subdivision, we were doing a lot of letter, sub, uh, letter uh, solicitations for those. Uh, we were looking for vacant tracks. Um, we acquired a 50-acre tract that was vacant land through a letter solicitation. Um, so we've been able to acquire a significant amount of properties that way. One, mm -hmm. of, one of the other things that I do is if I buy a property, uh, I try to introduce myself to the neighbors. And, uh, you know, I, I say, well, you have a nice property here. You know, if you ever you know, are interested in selling no, please give me a call. Here's my card. And I give them my card. You know, it has my phone number and contact information. I've gotten uh, properties that way um, that weren't listed. 
people called me sometimes years later saying, uh, no, we're interested in selling. No, you'd be interested in buying. Mm-hmm. But um, on one street where there's only 20 houses, um, I bought four. I had the only rental houses on the whole street. It was all owner occupants. I owned four houses on a street that, that only had 20 houses. Hmm. Um, you know, if you like the neighborhood, you know, why not buy more? Right. I mean, you don't, you don't have to have a really broad area. Um, you know, you can start out, you know, working a subdivision. That, that first house that I bought was in a subdivision of maybe 250, 250 houses. Well, I bought three houses in that same subdivision. Well, I know the subdivision. I like the subdivision. There are nice houses in that subdivision. They're all built around the same time. Um, Why not buy more? And if I found one in that same subdivision that uh, I thought was a good deal, I'd still buy it. It was the same subdivision that I bought the first house in. I'd still buy houses there. Mm -hmm. So if you know the area and you buy property there, you know, why not contact other people that have houses in that area? You know, there's that first subdivision, there's 250 houses in there. Uh, one way to start would be to contact all the, the ones that are non-owner occupied. You know, and How I would you do that? Or how would you recommend someone make contact? Uh, you can knock on everybody's door. <laughs> you know, that's pretty simple yeah. and easy to do. But... Mm-hmm. Um, assessment data has the owner's name and the owner's mailing address. So um, most of the counties have that information online. Uh, some of them have it online, but there's a fee to, to get access. And the, the counties that don't have it online at all are typically smaller, r- more rural counties. You know, if you'd want to do that in a county like that where they weren't online, you can go to the courthouse and get that information. You know, it's public information. It's free. Mm-hmm. You can go to the courthouse and look through the records. And, uh, you know, they're organized typically by map and parcel numbers so that the map and, you know, sometimes uh, uh, one subdivision, you know, if it's a large enough subdivision, would just be on, all on one map at the courthouse. All you have to do is just go around that whole map and get everybody's name and address and send them a letter or a postcard. Mm-hmm. And you and you can continuously do that. You know, you send them once, uh, send them another one, send them a second one. You know, people's you know, situations in their life changes. You know, people move, people you know, get sick, people pass away, you know, people have job transfers, divorces. People's you know, life situations change, so at one point in time they may not be interested in selling, but later on they might be. You know, all their kids are out of school and they decide they want to downsize. Mm-hmm. So they might they might be a candidate to sell their house. One hundred percent, David. And thank those, you so those, much for that answer. Those yeah. those life changes go on no matter what the economy is doing. If the economy is good or the economy is bad, you know. People still get sick. 
people still pass away, people still get job transfers, people still want to sell their house. Mm-hmm. 100%. David, are you ready for the show wind down? Some rapid fire questions? Sure. All right. Awesome. Um, do you use any specific system or thought process uh, now to plan your weeks and plan your days and how you manage your time? I don't have like a software system or anything else like that. Um, I I do have a calendar I keep for appointments. I want to make sure that I don't miss an appointment. Um, and I have a lot of like built-in work. I have some clients that I'm dealing with. You know, we have some properties that are uh, under contract to settle. You know, there's certain things that need to happen before we settle, so I'm, I'm working on some of those things. Um, I have tenants. Um, you know, things happen with the tenants. Uh, you know, their air conditioner doesn't work or their furnace doesn't work or they have a plumbing leak or some other things like that. So I have those kind of things that, that come up that I have to deal with too. So I have a a full calendar of things that I'm doing, and uh, uh, but I don't have any like software that manages that for me. I just do it myself. And how many properties do you currently um, manage or have in your portfolio? Um, over 50. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any tips or tools for self-managers out there that are thinking of how they can do it or, or maybe um, if, they, if they want to consider taking it in-house, how they can be effective with it and not overwhelmed or bombarded um, starting out? Um, I think you need to be responsive. Um, I have a lot of long-term tenants. I try to keep long-term tenants. I try to um, have tenants renew and stay for a long time. Um, I've had several tenants who have been my tenant for more than 30 years. Well, that's like the greatest tenant possible. Not to have a day of vacancy in 30 years. You know, not having a turnover, not having to do all the work, you know, that there is when there's a turnover. Turnovers are expensive. Vacancies are expensive. And I think people don't realize how expensive a vacancy and a turnover are. And you know, it affects your bottom line. 100%. What's next for you in 2020? What are your plans and, and beyond 2020? I'm always looking for a bargain property. Um, I have a property that I'm purchasing that's under contract. We're settling in May. <clears throat> I think it's a well-priced property, and I think it's a property that's going to be good now and it's going to be good in the future. So I'm looking for things that have a uh, you know, good potential in the future as well as you know, uh, a bargain price or a good price now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking to reduce my work. Um, I'm selling some properties, um, primarily to reduce my workload. And uh, I'm going to continue doing the, the same thing. I, At the end of the year, I always look at uh, the portfolio and see which ones are the, uh, the weakest ones. Uh, and I do a process I call thinning the herd. 
and I try to uh, either improve the ones that are underperforming to get them to, to be better performing or, you know, I'll sell them. You know, so I'm in a continual process where, uh, you know, I'm liquidating the ones that are uh, not meeting my goals. Sure. So my portfolio, as a, as a result, is getting better and better. Okay. That's... Uh... I like that, thinning the herd. It's kind of like uh, the essentialism concept. Uh, where can people learn more about you, uh, either online or get in touch with you? Um, I'm on Bigger Pockets. I've done a Bigger Pockets podcast, number 82. Uh, so anybody can contact me through there, um, or they can contact me through my email. Uh, my email address is david at centralpenlots.com. Uh, Penn has two ends, like Pennsylvania. Um, and I'm available to speak. I've spoken coast to coast um, at Mr. Landlord events, at Bigger Pocket events, and other events uh, all over the country. I've spoken in San Francisco to Manhattan. Uh, so I'm available for speaking. And I have um, a book, a 342-page book called how I started with nothing and made $12 million in real estate uh, has case studies in there. It shows what I paid for a property, what I sold the property for, what I rented it for, how I acquired it, what was the source of the funding, what was the source of the deal, and what I did to improve the property to sell it for a higher price. Uh, there's about 270 case studies in the book of properties that I actually bought uh, it's not fiction. It's all the facts and nothing but the facts. Love it. No fluff. Uh, no second fluff. last question. What advice would you give to yourself if you were starting out today? Um, I think I'd buy less properties. Um, I kind of categorize properties into three categories. Um, the worst category is properties where I didn't make any money. The second category is the category where I bought properties where I made a, a little bit of money, but you know, it wasn't worth my time or it wasn't worth the risk or wasn't worth the money involved. And then the third category are the ones where you know, things went well. We did, you know, we've done some... Um, really good deals. We've done uh, some subdivisions where um, our gross profit was seven figures. I wish I could do more of those deals. Uh, so I'd like to do less deals, uh, eliminate any deals that uh, are losers, and eliminate any deals that uh, even though I made a profit, you know, they weren't worth the profit that it made. I, sh I should have spent my time uh, not on the quantity of deals, but on the quality of deals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's right in line with uh, that, that concept you said earlier, thinning the herd, which I, I love. Uh, last question of the show, as uh, we talked about a little before, but the concept and, and mantra of this group is to add value if possible before asking for value. So is there anything right now that you're either working on, uh, maybe need some help with or support of, 
um, that if someone did, it would be a value add to you and start the relationship off on the right foot. I'm in a position now where um, I'm set up with, you know, help. Um, I think I'm in a position where um, I don't really need a lot of help at this point, and I'm not as aggressive as buying as I once was. Um, I get a lot out of helping other people. You know, I belong to half a dozen different RIA groups, uh, which I actively participate in, and I've spoken at all those groups. You know, I'm trying to share the, some of the things that I've done to help other people get along in the business and grow in the business, and uh, that helps me satisfy my goal to share what I've done so that other people can profit from the good things that I've done and not make the same mistakes that I've made. Well, then uh, you've done well and and you're giving back, which is awesome. So appreciate that. Uh, David, thank you so much for coming on and for continuing to bring value in the community, be active on bigger pockets, speaking, writing, creating content. Um, it's just awesome to see and, and you're helping a lot of people get ahead and learn about the ins and outs of real estate investing. So uh, thank you. Before we jump, do you have any last word or just parting thought, call to action, anything for the audience? Uh, I have a saying that I like to use all the time, and that is, um, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, don't limit yourself to one uh, acquisition method or, or one area of real estate. I think there's a lot of different things that you can do in real estate. And when one thing cools down, there's always something else that's hot at the moment. But don't be chasing shiny objects, but still have an arsenal of tools in your tool belt that you can do different things and adapt to different situations in real estate and different cycles in real estate. Love that. That's awesome advice. Well, David, thank you so much again for coming on all the best in 2020 and beyond. Uh, we'll be sharing out your book and your content. I'm sure it'll be a huge success. So uh, all the best and good luck. You too, Jonathan. Thank you for asking me to participate. I was glad to be here. All right. All the best. Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step -step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one -on -one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.